Welcome to Global Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I'm coming to you the day after Election Day in the United States, where the Democrats got walloped pretty badly. And while it's fair to say that the election did not necessarily turn on foreign policy issues, there are some pretty profound foreign policy implications from these elections. Here with me to discuss the foreign policy consequences of the U.S. midterm elections is Michael Cohen of the Century Foundation. He's also a columnist for the Boston Globe, and we have a pretty timely conversation about how the new makeup of the Senate may affect U.S. foreign policy. Here it is, my conversation with Michael Cohen. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I think the nuclear talks with Iran, which I think, you know... It will be Obama's key priority going forward on foreign policy. Um, there's a little bit of risk uh, to those talks after this election. And, and the reason I say that is, is if you see an extension of the talks on 24th of November, which seems like a real possibility, um, and it goes into 2015, uh, then you have a situation which Republicans in the Senate will almost certainly vote um, for the Kirk Menendez uh, bill for more sanctions on Iran. And I you know, from my own conversations with Democrats, I'm not completely convinced um, that Democrats can uh, override or can prevent uh, um, an override of presidential veto on that bill if it were to pass. Well, let's talk um, about that bill. Let's, let's give, uh, I think, a little context for people who aren't necessarily familiar. So Kurt Menendez, Kurt is a Republican from Illinois. Menendez, Mark Kurt, Robert Menendez. Yeah, Menendez is a chairman, is a Democratic chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. That's right. Who has this um, bill put forward to, I guess, strengthen sanctions against Iran, even in the midst of these delicate nuclear negotiations. And a lot of people believe that that should that pass, it might scuttle the negotiations, correct? Yes. I mean, I think what it would do, I think, is it would uh, perhaps convince the Iranians that uh, they may never get full sanctions relief from the U.S. Uh, yeah, I think it would actually end up weakening the U.S. bargaining position with Iran. Uh, it could lead to a retaliation, retaliatory moves from Iran. Uh, I just think it would roll the talks in a way that would be profoundly unhelpful. Um, and, you know, I think that the possibility of passing in the Senate is, is pretty much an, an uh, a lock. I mean, I, I can't imagine it will not pass unless, unless Democrats choose to filibuster, but I, I don't think they will. Um, and then you would have a situation in which the president would almost certainly veto it, and the question becomes, you know, can Democrats, can Republicans get enough votes? Um, they probably need about uh, 13 or 14 votes uh, to override presidential veto. Uh, I, I sort of doubt that would happen, but I also am not confident that it won't happen. Uh, you know, there's enough Democrats who are up uh, next cycle, um, enough Democrats who have been supportive of this bill, I think there's 16 Democratic co-sponsors of the bill, uh, that you, this is a real threat. Um, and I think, you know, even if it doesn't happen, even if there's no override of veto, 
just the fact that you have uh, the Senate basically passing another sanctions bill in Iran, I think would send a message to the Iranians that you know they have a lot to, uh, a lot of risk here if they make a deal with with the U.S. Uh, that the next president, if it's not uh, Hillary Clinton, if it's a Republican, um, could end up uh, not uh, um, providing the sort of sanctions relief that is part of this, uh, that would be part of any deal. So I think it's, it, would be a, it could be a real problem, and I think that, that it makes it sort of incumbent if it, on, on both sides to find a way to get a deal by the 24th. Um, you know, you still have, I think, an effort by uh, Republicans to pass the sanctions bill, but I think they have a lot less support on Democrats if there's an actual deal uh, in advance, uh, uh, you know, by the 24th. So I guess you're saying that this lame duck session is pretty much the one of the last opportunities to pass a uh, Iran nuclear deal or, or for the U.S. to negotiate an Iran nuclear deal um, in a way that might not be undermined by sort of Senate actions on strengthening uh, sanctions against Iran. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's I think that if you, you really have to figure out a way if you are. Um, Iran and the U.S. to get a deal uh, by the time the new Senate um, is, is seated, which happens in January. Uh, again, I, you know, I don't want to say for sure. I mean, I think even if there is still a, there's certainly a possibility that even if Republicans, even if there's a deal pushed back to next year, you can still get it through and still get both sides to agree to it. Both sides certainly see benefits in making a deal. It just gets a lot harder. Um, and I think that's the biggest, the biggest reason for concern about last night's election results. From a foreign uh, policy perspective, um, you know, and and if you're looking at this from say the the perspective of like the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, you know, the the current chair of it, uh, the outgoing chair Menendez, um, you know, is critical of this Iran deal, and he's a co-sponsor of this bill, as you said. Uh, he'll be replaced probably by by Corker from Tennessee. Right. Um, you know, is there anything about like his legislative background that suggests? Um, you know any um, you know, changes to you know, foreign policy or or how the Senate might interact with foreign policy issues? You know, it's it's hard to say. I mean, I the thing is, I'm not sure that it that it matters necessarily. I think that in the sense that, uh, first of all, I mean, I think Corker has been somewhat of a responsible Republican on foreign policy issues for yeah. the most part. Uh, he's not been sort of a bomb thrower as, as other Republicans have been. But in the end, you know, nothing much is going to get accomplished uh, in, 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 in Congress this, this, this next two years. Um, and that has little to do with who the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee is. It has more to do with who the majority leader is, which is Mitch McConnell, who is Mitch McConnell. Um, so I think in the sense that, you know, you, you may see, uh, you know, Republicans pushing measures coming out of the Senate and the House that will, that will be in opposition to President Obama's foreign policy views, foreign policy positions. Certainly, I think you might see a defense budget that uh, will not be what he's looking for. Um, but I think, by and large, uh, I don't know if it will have a huge impact. I do imagine you're going to see a lot of vetoes from this president of whatever comes out of the Senate. Because I think whatever comes out of the Senate is going to be uh, something that's going to be supported mainly by Republicans. Um, and is going to be uh, not acceptable to, 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 to the president. So I don't, I don't necessarily see legislatively um, a lot changing. Um, in fact, if I was Obama, I would probably just continue um, my foreign policy as, as, as I have, as he has for the past several years without much change, uh, of course. I don't see much reason why he, why he should do so. This is the only place where he can really um, ha- have an impact. doesn't have to worry about what Congress uh, uh, thinks that what he's doing. Well, that's true, I think, to a certain extent, except when you get into like budget issues. Um, when, uh, you know, the, the dynamic, at least since, um, 2010 has been, 
you know, Republicans in the House passed this pretty, you know, kind of extreme uh, budget proposal. Um, Obama has his, you know, budget request, at least relates to foreign affairs issues like U.N. funding. That's pretty, you know, mainstream issues like full funding of the U.N., uh, increased funding for international development issues. And then the Senate has kind of like split the difference a little bit. Um, I imagine that that splitting of the difference is going to be a lot harder now. Um, <laughs> I would imagine so. Yes. But but that's also part of the reason why you're unlikely to see the Republicans successfully pass a budget. Uh, I think it's going to be very, very hard for them to actually do that. And I'm not sure uh, they, they want to. Uh, you know, you pass a budget that creates, that's a document, a document that can then be used against you um, in, uh, in the next election. And for, there are a lot of vulnerable Republicans up in 2016, uh, Toomey in Pennsylvania, Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, Kelly Yacht in New Hampshire, uh, Mark Kirk in Illinois. All of them are in very, uh, are going to have very tough races in, in predominantly blue states with Hillary Clinton probably on, on top of the ticket. So, uh, and then you have people like Ted Cruz and, and, uh, and Rand Paul who are going to want to move the party more to the right. So I, I sort of don't know how effective Republicans are going to be in actually passing a budget. Um, but if they do, I feel fairly confident the president will, will veto it. Uh, it will not be overridden, and you'll probably see uh, a, a continuing resolution of some sort for the next two years that will, that will fund the federal government. And that's my assumption of what will happen. Um, you may see some shutdowns. You may see some re- repeal we've seen over the past couple of years. I don't think you're going to see some big compromise between the two sides or a budget passed by Republicans that the president will find acceptable. Um, so, you know, you mentioned how uh, Corker, the new uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee chair from Tennessee, is sort of like a mainstream Republican, definitely conservative, but not like as extreme as other members. But I would imagine that the incoming chair of the Armed Services Committee is, is James Inhofe, who is, you know, one of those more extreme Republicans. Um, do you see his chairmanship as, um, you know, implement or, or impacting you know, policy in any significant way, or is it pretty much the same, like nothing's going to happen in this Congress anyway? It's interesting. I mean, I, I would have thought it would be McCain who would take over on services, but I don't, it, but you know what, I don't think it really matters. I think either one of them, yeah. uh, you're going to see the same kind of uh, a positioning on, on national security. I mean, the big thing is, you know, will the president be able to pass to get his um, uh, appointments to, you know, to the Pentagon, to the State Department through those committees? And I, you know, I, I kind of doubt it, actually. I mean, maybe on some smaller levels, but I think in a lot of these places, you're going to see Republicans just hold up uh, nominations as much as they possibly can uh, as just as a, as a sort of blackmail tool in the White House. I think that's where it might have an effect. But again, I, you could have the, the best Republican on the, on the Armed Services Committee or on the, the Foreign Relations Committee, but ultimately it comes down to you know, what Mitch McConnell wants to do. Um, and whether he sees advantage in, in, in letting the Democrats, letting the, the White House stock the administration with uh, their own people. And my guess is he won't see much advantage in doing that. Um, so the crop of Republicans that got elected to the, the Senate last night, it seems to me sort of uh, contained um, two of the kind of competing Republican foreign policy strands. I mean, you have the sort of Rand Paul, more isolationist types, and then you have like the, you know, McCain types, the, the sort of, uh, you know, aggressive, you know, interventionist types. Um, I guess, how do you see that internal sort of debate or battle playing itself out in the Republican Party over the coming, you know, couple of years? You know, I think there's not much to be gleaned, I think, from the, the, um, the exit polls. But one thing that did jump out to me was that when asked about um, the action against ISIS, the approval was 58 to 35. Um, and this is in a pretty heavily 
electorate that's, I think, slanted toward the Republicans. So, wait, so um, what do you mean the approval was? I'm sorry, people who approved of, of the president's actions against okay. ISIS, 58% versus 35%, um, which tells me that, um, that the, there's still a, real, a pretty hawkish strain on, on foreign policy, particularly among Republicans. Um, and I think if you look at some of the polling over the last couple of years, Republicans tend to be pretty hawkish. Um, and I don't really see much evidence that they're going to buy into um, the, the Rand Paul kind of the, uh, isolation is not the right word for it. I would say sort of restraint um, on foreign policy. I think that that's actually a liability for Paul. I mean, among some voters, I think it will be helpful. But I think among rank-and-file Republicans, that's not the position uh, that's going to be most useful for them. And I think, for example, if you see an Iran nuclear deal, um, I think you'll see every Republican strongly and uh, tenuously oppose that, including, I think, uh, Rand Paul. Uh, and the same goes for, you know, if, if tensions ratchet up between the U.S. and, and Israel. So I think uh, it, there's been this argument for a few years now that, that Rand Paul represents this different strain of thinking the Republican Party, and I, I just don't buy it. I think the Republican Party is a hawkish foreign policy party, uh, has been for many years, will continue to be that way. And, you know, if you're Rand Paul, you're, you're, the, you're the sort of the... Um, the skunk at the party, because everyone else who's running is basically going to take the position uh, of sort of uber hawkishness on foreign policy. Um, so I'm not sure that's going to work out so well for him. Um, I guess finally, do you see um, last night's election results in any way impacting uh, U.S. policy on uh, Syria and Iraq? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, and I, I just I don't. I, I don't have any real indication that that the president's actions in, in Iraq and Syria um, – uh, were on the ballot um, that they were judged harshly by the president. I think, if anything, you could argue uh, that if I mean the, the the maybe one takeaway people want to see tougher action against ISIS, not not less. Um, I don't think the president is going to is going to um, respond too much to that. I mean, in large measure because I think look, foreign policy is not an issue of great concern to Americans right now. I mean, they're worried about the economy. Um, they're worried about issues at home. And I think Obama is going to have somewhat of a free reign on foreign policy to do what he wants to do, um, which has been true for a very long time. And I think, if anything, he'll feel less constrained by politics than he has in the past. Um, and the, the odd thing is uh, that the more, I don't know, restrained he is, the more modest he is, the more even, even dovish he is, that oddly actually kind of helps, could help Hillary Clinton because it would allow her to create a contrast between herself and the president. I'm not sure, I, I don't think it's smart for her to do that, but I, I imagine she may want to. So I think, you know, in that sense, I, I just don't see a big change. And I think the president's priorities, the president's priorities. He does not want to put ground troops in, in Iraq and, and, and Syria. Uh, he wants a nuclear deal with Iran. Um, you know, he wants to pivot to Asia. And if you look at, you know, what he's been saying recently in Israel-Palestine, you get the sense he also wants to put pressure on, on Israel. Um, so my, my takeaway from this really is that I don't, I, don't, I don't see much of a change in the president's foreign policy because of this election. If anything, I would think he would just double down on the position he'd already, he'd already taken. Um, so I guess, to what extent do you think this is then like an inflection point in which uh, Obama might make changes in his national security team? I mean, I remember after uh, the Republicans got uh, walloped in, I guess it was the 2006 elections, was finally when sort of Bush dumped Rumsfeld and, and right. went for Gates. So, I mean, do you expect to see any big changes along those lines? I don't. I don't. Totally different context, of course, you know, in the sense that we obviously the 2006 election was in part a referendum on the war. And so Rumsfeld was the sort of the, the, the um, you know, he was the, uh, the sacrifice for, for that perspective of Americans being, being opposed to the war in Iraq. But I don't think, you know, what, what, you know, firing Chuck Hagel 
<laughs> for getting rid of anyone it would, would literally affect no votes whatsoever. I mean, it just won't make any difference at all. Um, and I look, I think that this president, you know, for better or for worse, does not think his foreign policy is flawed, does not think that he's made mistakes. I think he likes his foreign policy team. You can, you can assess whether he's right or wrong to feel that way. I don't get the sense that this is somebody who feels that he's made mistakes. Um, now, maybe, again, that could be a big problem, and that could be something that, that, that will hurt Democrats over the next two years. But I, I sense that he thinks he's pursuing the right policies, um, and he is happy with his team. I, I just, you know, I don't see any indication that John Kerry or Hagel or, or Susan Rice or Samantha Power are going to be removed. You might see some changes inside the White House, uh, and that may be as much a reflection of people just burn out after six years. Um, but you know, these these sort of staff shakeups. I want to talk about them, and they never really have uh, any major impact. I mean, as far as uh, political impact. Um, they may have some policy impact, but that's probably where you see more of, a, more of an effect. Uh, well, Michael, thank you so much. It's super helpful. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. Well, thank you all for listening. Uh, if you're new to this podcast, go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and you can subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or just check out some of our archives. Uh, every Thursday, and this is a little different because it's the day after election day, so I made an exception, but every Thursday I have these shorter conversations with journalists or think tank types about something topical and in the news. Uh, and every Monday I post longer conversations with foreign policy thought leaders or luminaries about their life and career. And these are just fun, evergreen conversations. You can listen to them anytime. Uh, people like George Mitchell, Bill Richardson, Jeffrey Sachs, Louise Arbour, Jessica Tuckman Matthews. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. They've all sat and told me their life story and fascinating stories they have to tell. All right, thanks, and we'll see you next time. Bye.